I saw a cartoon recently of a woman sitting in a doctor's examination room. And there was a sign on the wall in this cartoon that said this. Patient will be charged extra for annoying the doctor with any self-diagnosis gotten off the internet. I couldn't help but laugh because it's a running joke in our family about a certain member of our family's habit of coming up with catastrophic possibilities for relatively minor symptoms because she, I'm sorry, he or she read on Google what the possibilities might be. You know, the glut of information available to us on the internet trains us, doesn't it, to be a self-acclaimed expert and to figure out what is wrong with us. But here's the deal. When I go to the doctor, I don't want him or her to merely agree with my own conclusions about what's going on. I want the doctor to diagnose me correctly. If it's, if it's less serious than I thought, well, well, tell me. If it's more serious than I thought, well, by all means, I want the doctor to tell me. Because sometimes, friends, as we know, the, the right diagnosis is the difference between life and death. In our passage today in the book of Matthew, we see an encounter between a paralyzed man and Jesus. This paralytic came to Jesus by faith for physical healing, but he left an entirely new person. In this encounter, the great physician's diagnosis was that the man's greatest problem was not his disability, but his sin. Therefore, his greatest need wasn't to walk, but to be forgiven. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 9 is on page 813 of the Bible underneath your seat. If you're just now joining us in the book of Matthew, friend, you can summarize Matthew's entire gospel in one word. And that's the word fulfillment. Matthew presents Jesus of Nazareth as Israel's Messiah. He's the long-awaited Christ, the anointed king who fulfills God's ancient promises to bring salvation and to reverse the curse and to conquer death and to restore the world back to Eden. Thus far in Matthew, we've seen that, that through Jesus's genealogy, remember in chapter one and the events surrounding his, his birth in chapters one and two, through his, through his baptism in chapter three, by John the Baptist and by his victory over temptation and his, in chapter 4 and his authoritative teaching in chapters 5 through 7 and his miraculous works here in chapter 8 and 9. We've seen through all that that indeed in Jesus, the king has arrived. We saw this clearly, didn't we, the last couple of weeks as we looked in Jesus' miracles in chapter 8. His healing of the leper and of the centurion's servant and of Peter's mother-in-law were like snapshots on the camera roll of the coming kingdom. Jesus is starting to roll back death and reverse the curse by bringing life. His calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, his exorcisms of the demons in the Galilean Gentile country prove that he has authority, friends, over every power in heaven and on earth. He does works that only God can do. We see in, in his miracles that Jesus the Christ is not merely a human king. His humanity enfleshes God. He is the God-man, fully human and fully divine. 
Perhaps nowhere in the Gospels is this fact, this this fact that Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, more clear than in Matthew 9, 1-8, in this encounter with the paralyzed man. So let's read together the first eight verses of Matthew 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Friends, each week I try to give you a main idea of the text that I hope becomes the main idea of the sermon. This is what we understand expositional preaching to be. So here's the main idea of Matthew 9, 1-8 this morning. More than anything else, your greatest need is forgiveness. And Jesus holds the authority to grant it to you. More than anything else in all the world, more than anything in your life, More than any good thing or any bad thing, your greatest need is forgiveness. And Jesus holds the authority to grant it to you. Three points this morning from the text. Number one, from verses one and two, Jesus gifts forgiveness. Number two, in verses three to seven, he demonstrates his authority. And finally, from verse eight, Jesus evokes a response. Friends, I pray that this morning you might understand in a deeper way just exactly who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. And that you would see in the healing of the paralytic the story, the narrative of your own soul. That you, like me, like everyone, has a great problem. But you also have an even greater Savior. Let's look at the first point. Jesus gifts forgiveness. According to verse 1, Jesus and his disciples have recrossed the Sea of Galilee from their southeast location where he demonstrated his authority to the demonic realm in Gadara. And now they've traveled northwest to what Matthew calls Jesus' own city. Not Bethlehem where he was born or Nazareth of Galilee where he grew up for many years, but Capernaum. We found out in Matthew 4, verse 13, that at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus moved from Nazareth to this coastal city of Capernaum so that it might serve as the hub of his ministry. You know, friends, in chapters 8 and 9, as we've, as we've gone through them together, you cannot help but see that wherever Jesus went, whether he was in Capernaum or whether he's crossing the sea or whether he's on the other side of the lake, when he comes back, wherever he goes, Jesus moves toward problems. He he didn't run from the people in need. He moved toward them. His ministry is not only one of shocking power and unrivaled authority, but remarkable compassion 
and mercy. And such is the case in our text today. Verse 2 says that, that some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. We don't know much about this man. We just know he couldn't walk. Perhaps he had some debilitating disease from birth. Perhaps he was a paraplegic from a, from a tragic accident that rendered him disabled. We don't know why he was disabled, but we know why he was there. This man was, was desperate, wasn't he? He was desperate to walk. And he and his friends believed that Jesus could heal him. Here was a man whose desperation drove him to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew describes concisely what Mark and Luke describe more fully in Mark 2 and Luke 5, respectively. Mark and Luke highlight the degree to which the paralytic's friends trusted that if they got this man to Jesus, Jesus could raise him up. Do you remember what they did? Right? The, the crowds had, had blocked the way to Jesus. And so what did they do? They went up on the roof and they opened up a hole in the roof and they let the man down on the bed right into the presence of Jesus Christ. So great was their care for this man that they weren't put off by the very normal obstacle of a large crowd. They didn't just think, well, today's not our day. We're going home. No, their trust in Jesus fueled creativity and how to get their friend in front of him. Brothers and sisters, friends help friends get to Jesus. You want to be a good friend to your unbelieving friends and family and coworkers and neighbors? Yes, yes, befriend them. Yes, do good to them. Showcase the love of Christ through their hospitality and selfless acts of kindness by all means, but do it all so that you might move them toward the Lord Jesus Christ, if at all possible. Be ready, friends, and willing to open your mouth to actually speak the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Friends, don't be afraid to ask your unbelieving friends to invite them to come to church with you. I know this is a gathering of primarily of believers in the Lord Jesus, but I hope you know by now that every time this, this church doors are open, every time we open the Word, you can trust that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is going to be proclaimed, God willing, from this pulpit. Invite them to church. Get them around other church members. Be creative. Like the paralytic's friends, don't be afraid to tag team to get people to Jesus. It's a great lesson that these, these men teach us, that friends help friends get to Jesus Christ. Notice, though, that everything that happens next to the paralytic is a response to their faith. Not just his faith, but their faith. Verse 2 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your, your sins are forgiven. Jesus' response here is not merely to the paralytic's faith in him, but the faith of the people who brought him. Now, friends, if that were me teaching, if someone had opened up the, you know, of course, I'm not a healer, but if they had opened up their roof somehow to, and to get to our gathering, I think I would be a little bit perturbed. Like, what, what are you doing? Right? But Jesus was not put off by the audacity of these people. He wasn't upset that they had interrupted his teaching or whatever he was doing at the time. No, he responded to their faith with compassion. Here we see modeled in the, in the paralytic and his friends, I think, friends, the nature of the type of faith that saves. It's really not complicated or complex, is it? 
They recognized that the paralytic was in desperate need of help, and they believed that Jesus could provide that help. They were relying in, they were trusting in Jesus' power and His authority alone to heal. Friends, when we talk about saving faith, I don't want you to get the impression that somehow it's your faith that saves you. I don't want to imply that it's about the amount of your faith, right? Like there's a level one, two, three, and four type of faith, about the quality of your faith, or really about anything regarding your faith. Jesus did not feel constrained to help these men because of how creative they got in coming down through the roof. It's not like that was level five faith where the rest of the crowd just had level one. That's not what was going on. Rather, all that these men did was evidence that the evidence that they were desperate for Jesus to act. Their faith laid hold on him. Your faith doesn't save you. Rather, Jesus saves through faith. It's about the object of your faith, not the amount of your faith or the quality of your faith. Perhaps at this point, you can hear the scoffing of the skeptics and the agnostics. Ah, you Christians live in a different world, right? You operate by faith. The rest of the world operates by reason and by science. Friends, is that true? You sat down in a chair this morning, believing, trusting, relying that it would hold you up. Unless you're a little bit strange, I don't think you examine the chair, right? See what, 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 is it sturdy, right? Are the screws tightened in enough? No, you merely saw the chair and you sat down. When you got into your car this morning, you trusted that your car would get you to church. I'm guessing that you didn't do an inspection of your car before you started driving, right? You didn't ask the gas station, well, Tell me the details. <laughs> Tell me the specs of the type of gasoline that I'm, that I'm putting into to my car. No, you just go there and you trust that they're providing gasoline that works and you fill the tank. Sure, you've gotten some data. You have some track record to back your faith. It's not blind or unreasoned. But this morning, the reality is that all of us already have exercised faith multiple times, whether or not we realize it. The question isn't whether or not you exercise faith, but rather on whom you're relying. Friends, we Christians, we trust in Jesus Christ, not because we're weak-minded people or in desperate need of an emotional crutch, but because we believe that 2,000 years ago, a man walked this earth who through his words and his works and ultimately his death and resurrection, he embodied God's reign. We believe that he really did heal. He really did cast out demons. He really did die in place of sinners. He really did get up from the dead on the third day. We believe ourselves to be in desperate need of a type of help that only He can provide. And we believe with all of our hearts that Jesus helps those who help themselves. Well, oh, just, just, just making sure you're listening. We believe that Jesus helps those who cast themselves fully upon him for his help. Jesus responded to the faith of the paralytic and his friends with a word of strengthening hope. Listen to Jesus' words. 
Take heart, my son. You can hear the affection in Jesus's voice. My son, be encouraged. He's basically saying to this man in need, everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to be okay because Jesus is going to heal him, right? Well, it depends on what type of healing you're talking about. Because the next words out of Jesus's mouth are not rise and walk, but your sins are forgiven. What? Like, how could Jesus be this callous? This man wasn't here for the forgiving of his sins, but for the healing of his body. How insensitive for Jesus to get all spiritual, to get all religious, when this man's need is clearly physical. Friends, what we have here is the great physician accurately diagnosing the paralytic's greatest malady. Jesus is not downplaying the man's paralysis. He's not ignoring the suffering of this man who could not walk. Rather, he's proving a point. The paralytic's physical need pictured in a graphic way his spiritual need. His suffering was but a symptom of his greatest problem. As serious as, as was the, the man's disability, it did not hold a candle to the seriousness of his sin. As great as his need was to walk, how much greater this man's need for forgiveness. It's not to say that the man's paralysis was punishment for specific sin. We're, we're not given any, any indication of that, are we? There's no scripture that tells us that this man was especially debauched or marked by exceptional wickedness. Rather, here's what we know. We know that this man was born a son of Adam. He, like all of humanity, therefore stands condemned before God, the righteous judge. The paralytic, like all of us, had inherited Adam's corruption. Sin had stained his soul irreparably so that his desires and his actions were shot through by iniquity. Like all humanity under the fall, he had no willingness, this man. He had no ability to get himself to God in a way that could save him on his own. He, like all of us, had inherited Adam's corruption and Adam's guilt so that he was a child of wrath. His greatest need was not to walk. His greatest need was to be forgiven. Friends, listen to how Isaiah described the sin of Israel during their time of exile. It describes the natural condition of all humanity. Isaiah 1. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. It's a graphic description, isn't it? According to Isaiah, our greatest sickness, our greatest paralysis, our ultimate malady isn't external, but internal. It's not out there in our circumstances or even out there in our bodies, but here in our souls and our hearts. Our greatest problem is that left to ourselves, we are diseased by sin from head to toe. Our souls, as Isaiah said, are like open festering wounds of rebellion against our Creator. We are sinners through and through. Our greatest problem is sin. 
Our greatest need is forgiveness. Friend, I, I don't want to take for granted that you understand this, that why our greatest need is indeed forgiveness and why our greatest problem is sin. And let me explain just briefly. According to the witness of Scripture, which we, of course, believe to be God's Word, sin is not just mistakes that we make. We like to recategorize our sin, don't we? Right? I just made a mistake. Just a minor peccadillo. We minimize our sin in terms of, oh, it's just a little white lie. It's a little harmless fun. Just necessary to get where I wanted to go. But friends, Scripture doesn't speak of sin in terms of harmless mistakes. The Bible presents our sin not in terms of what harms us or even what harms others, first and foremost, but what is offensive to God. It's sin against Him. It's infinite and eternal offense against an infinite and eternally good God. And it's not merely that we've transgressed God's law, is it? That would be bad enough. That is true. It's that we've miserably failed to give our Creator the worship and praise and thanks that He deserves. The problem is not merely that we're lawbreakers, that, but that we're idolaters. Instead of worshiping our unimaginably good God, instead of imaging His glory and His beauty toward others, our hearts are like industrial centers for false worship. What springs out of our hearts naturally isn't the worship of God, but the worship of other things in our own image. Friends, God created you. He created Adam and Eve to bend upward toward Him in worship and then outward toward others, reflecting that glory through all the earth and love to others. But what happens with sin is that sin curves us in on ourselves. We are by nature consumed with number one. We're pri we prize our own autonomy. We lift up ourselves in pride. We even concoct religion as a vehicle for self-congratulation and self-absorption. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says that because of our idolatry, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Friends, God would cease to be good if he ceased to be just. And he would cease to be just if he did not deal with those who rebelled against him in this type of cosmic treason. It's not merely that we've committed sins, but that we are to our very core sinners. Sin rules over us and we give ourselves to it. So friends, the need for forgiveness is remarkably democratic, isn't it? It's the same for the rich and the poor, the famous and the obscure, the old and the young, the, the sick and the healthy, the, the paralytic and the Olympic athlete and all the rest of us in between and somewhere in the middle. The need is the same. We all stand need in need of pardon. We all need for God to grant us the opposite of what our sin has earned. You see, this very mention of the word forgiveness implies something, doesn't it? It implies that sin has merited a penalty. We don't just sin into the ether of eternity with no recompense. Rather, God's justice cannot let us off the hook for our rebellion. We deserve His justice. 
We deserve eternal death and hell separated from him forever. That's why the paralytic needed forgiveness. That's why you and I need the same. Friends, in the healing of this paralytic, we begin to, to, to enter into the white hot core of Jesus's messianic mission. This is what he came to do, isn't it? All of his teaching, all of his miraculous works, they're meant to showcase that he is the answer to mankind's greatest problem. He has come so that sinners might be forgiven in his name. Friends, our greatest problem is within us, but rest assured that the solution to our greatest problem is without us. Our sickness is on the inside. Our healing comes from the outside. What Jesus does here is remarkable. The paralytic didn't ask for forgiveness, did he? Jesus merely granted it to him out of the abundance of his free grace. The paralytic, he didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. It was free. Jesus didn't say, son, your sins might be forgiven if you meet certain conditions. Or even your sins will be forgiven. You know, once the priest offers the right sacrifice for you, right? Once you go to the temple and take care of all the ritual cleansing. No, your sins, son, past, present, future are forgiven right now. We see Jesus here operating as the great high priest and granting forgiveness based on no outside source but himself. This forgiveness is grounded in who he is. And because we know the rest of the story, we know that this forgiveness is, is grounded in what he would eventually do. He forgave the paralytic not by sweeping his sins under the rug of eternity, but by going to the cross for him and absorbing in his body the paralytic sin, and the sin of all who would trust in him. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Beloved, Jesus lived for us. He died for us. And he was raised for us. Hear the words of Jesus to the paralytic and claim them as your own. Take heart, my son. Be encouraged. Be comforted. Why? Your sins are forgiven. And you see that the assurance that we have as believers is that, is that at the cross, Jesus dealt with our sins so, so thoroughly, so, so efficiently, so fully that, that that forgiveness ought to radically reshape our perspective on everything else, even something as serious as paralysis. Take heart. He still couldn't walk. Take heart. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus' words for the paralytic to take heart weren't glib. They weren't, they weren't trite. Rather, forgiveness from sin should revolutionize our perspective on everything else in this life that ails us. Do you suffer physically, friend? You can rejoice that the pains of this life are the greatest suffering you'll ever know if you're forgiven. And rest assured that Jesus cares. Are you burdened by job frustrations or family struggles or financial insecurity or loneliness, or the pain of loss? None of those things are insignificant. It's not flippant to say that during your affliction, you ought to praise God daily that Jesus has already removed your greatest burden. Your sins are forgiven.
God knows that you're a great sinner, but because of Jesus, he chooses not to remember your sin against you. That's what forgiveness is. God choosing not to hold or to remember your sins against you. Instead, he looks at you with the fatherly affection that he has for his beloved son, whom he offered in your place. So that in your suffering, you are loved by him. Number two, not only does Jesus gift forgiveness, he demonstrates his authority. In the crowd that day watching the scene unfold were some of the scribes. These were the religious experts, the teachers of the Old Testament law. If anyone, friend, should have recognized the Messiah when they saw him, it was the experts of the Old Testament, right? Instead, they were blind. They treated Jesus as an imposter or even worse, as a blasphemer. Verse 3, Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Friends, these religious leaders were wrong on basically everything that pertained to Jesus and his ministry, but they understood one thing rightly, didn't they? Forgiveness is the prerogative of God alone. From Genesis 3 on, this truth is just plain to see in the Scripture. If man's sin is rebellion against God, then no one else but God can forgive that sin against him. Friends, I don't, I don't need you to be an, uh, you know, a New Testament or Old Testament scholar to grasp this point, right? You know, it, it, if, if Chuck sins against Henry, right? I can't step in and say to Chuck, well, Chuck, I forgive you for that sin. Henry has to be the one to forgive Chuck, right? The sin was not against me. I was not the one offended. I'm not the one who has the right then to forgive. Friend, how much greater is this point in our rebellion against God? He's the one alone who must forgive the sin against him. We read scripture this morning that reiterated that point. God alone is the one who forgives sin, right? We read it in, in Isaiah 43, and we read it in Exodus 34. You read it in Psalm 103, really the entire Bible. God forgives sin in His way and through His prescribed means. And Jesus here proclaimed to the paralytic that He is forgiven, not based on any atoning sacrifice, right? Not on it, but His own, obviously. Not on any burnt offering basis, right? But merely on His Word. You're forgiven. On Friday, I had the opportunity to watch... Uh, our brother Pat Cassidy graduate from the F-16 flight school at, at Luke Air Force Base. If that's not what you call it, Pat, I forget, forgive me, but Pat graduated as an F-16 pilot. And Can you imagine what would have happened if during the ceremony I had stepped forward and interrupted the squadron com commander as he was giving out the awards to these pilots and said something to the effect of uh, Butch, that's Pat's call sign, Butch, I not only award you the air-to-air -air combat award for your class, but I hereby promote you from major all the way to four-star general in the United States Air Force. What would have happened? They would have, they would have laughed me out of the room. They would have told me to sit down and shut up. What if, I, what if I tell you, friend, that I pay my taxes? I pay my taxes to help fund the United States military. I'm afraid that's not enough, sir. Please leave. <laughs> you know. Well, well, I'm I'm Pat's pastor, right? <laughs> right? 
Uh, sir, pastors cannot dole out military promotions. I'm sorry to tell you, that's not your jurisdiction. That's not your prerogative. Perhaps imagining that, that scenario might help you to, to, to sense and just how audacious the scribes thought Jesus was being. To them, what he just said to the paralytic was brazenly wrong. And because Jesus assumed a role that rightly belonged to God, their opinion of Jesus was not that he was a forgiver, but that he was a blasphemer. Verse 4 says that, that Jesus in that moment exercised, uh, I think, a prophetic and a divine authority. He supernaturally discerned the scribes' thoughts without hearing anything that they had said. And notice how he categorized their conclusion about him. He said, why are your thoughts evil? How ironic. These scribes thought that, that Jesus belittled God by assuming the authority to forgive sins, but instead they were belittling him. And that was the real evil. Theirs was the blasphemy, not him, not his. Look at Jesus' response. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to, to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Notice that Jesus didn't ask the scribes which was easier to do, but what was easier to say? Even though forgiving human sin as God does, is in reality the harder thing to do. Common sense tells you it's really the easier thing to say, right? Jesus could say, your sins are forgiven, but how would really anyone know that that was true? No one could peer into the, the paralytic soul and, and measure whether or not he was actually forgiven of his sin. All that we can see as men is, is the outside. And so Jesus then says the harder thing. Rise and walk to verify the easier thing. Your sins are forgiven. His authority to heal proved his authority to forgive. He addresses the scribes, I'm doing this in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And then he just cuts off mid-sentence, right? In order that you may know this, drum roll please, he turns to the paralytic and says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Jesus called their bluff, didn't he? He healed the paralytic as a way to shame his enemies and to pr prove his authority over sin and all of its effects. In this, in this healing, in the, his forgiveness, he dealt with the fall and the curse all at once. Notice that when, when Jesus pronounced his authority to forgive sins, he once again referred to himself as what? In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. Clearly, he's not just referring to himself as a human, as a man. He has to be referencing the exalted Son of Man prophesied in Daniel 7, 13 to 14 that we talked about last week. Friends, if you want to understand the person and work of Christ, you need to study Daniel 7, and specifically verses 13 to 14. It is tremendously important to understanding Jesus' self awareness, his self-understanding of his person and work. 
Remember, the Son of Man in Daniel is this, this messianic figure who receives an eternal kingdom and universal worship. So when, when Jesus says to the scribes, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, He's showing us exactly how the Son of Man will exercise that authority. How will He garner the worship of the world? Well, He's going to do so by dealing with human sin. Friend, do you remember the identity of the Son of Man in Daniel? We looked at it last week. Clearly, he's an exalted human, right? He's an exalted king, but he also rode on the clouds of heaven into the presence of the Ancient of Days. So clearly, he's divine. He's a human divine king. Friends, I think knowing that fact is just massively significant to, to what Jesus is doing here and stating his authority to forgive sins. Think about this with me. Why is that so important? All throughout salvation history, two things are simultaneously true in, in God's relationship to His people. Okay? Number one, God alone is the one who forgives His people's sin. Okay? In His mercy, He made a way under the Old Covenant. We read about it this morning. For, for his, his people's sin to be atoned for through regularly, regular, ongoing, bloody sacrifices. Right? He was the one who forgives sin. But then He promised a day that, that it's going to dawn under the New Covenant. We read in Jeremiah this morning when He would forgive the iniquity of His people once and for all. He would remember their sin no more. So that's the first thing. God is the one who forgives sin. Number two, the second thing that's simultaneously true in, in God's covenant as, as they unfold in the Scripture is that He promises over and over that a human king would come, the offspring of woman, to bring the salvation about, that the son of David would defeat God's enemies and extend God's glory as far as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah pictures the Messiah not merely as the conqueror, but as the servant who represents his people by bearing the wrath of God so that their sins might be forgiven. The promised king is a servant who would conquer. So friends, when Jesus healed the paralytic and forgave his sin with the authority of the Son of Man, it's like a Christological bomb detonated in Capernaum. Only God can forgive sin. So Jesus must be God. And only a perfect man can represent God's people as king and bear their sins and usher in the kingdom. So Jesus must be that man. He is fully God and He's fully man. He's flawlessly qualified both to forgive sin and also be the sin bearer. It's incredible. Friend, in this healing of the paralytic, the coming kingdom of God the age to come just comes barreling into this present age. We've seen it in chapter 8 that the reign of God entailed the healing of sickness and the stilling of the storm and Jesus' victory over the demons. It's no different here. The kingdom of God brings forgiveness of sins. This is what Paul said in Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into what? the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, there is coming a day when sin and death and paraplegia will be no more. But the only reason it will be so 
is because the Son of Man exercised His authority to forgive our sins. Beloved Jesus is our servant King who conquered and will conquer. He represented us by His sinless life. He represented us by His atoning death and His victorious resurrection and His his powerful ascension. And now He continues representing us in His enthroned session at the right hand of the Father where as our high priest and king, he even right now intercedes for all those whom he has forgiven. Verse 7 says that when Jesus spoke the word, the man who could not walk rose to his feet and walked home. Friends, so authoritative was the voice of Jesus Christ that if he had not limited his authority in that moment, all the paralytics in the world would have risen to their feet and walked home. Jesus had not just healed this man's legs. More importantly, he had healed his soul. The man's new legs represented his new heart. His resurrected mobility pictured a resurrected life. The power of the kingdom had broken in. This man was made new. Number three, finally, Jesus evokes a response. Verse 8 says that when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. What is the right response to such supernatural authority? What's the proper reaction to one who proved that he is he has the right to forgive sin by a demonstration of such extraordinary power? Well, the text says that the crowds, they were afraid. They, they were in dread. They were awestruck by what they had just witnessed. And why shouldn't they be? After all, the one who has the authority to forgive sin also has the power to judge it. It goes both ways. The text says this fear of God provoked the crowds to glorify God, to give Him honor that He had given such authority to men. Now, this may seem confusing at first. Matthew isn't saying that God had given the authority to forgive sins to, to many different men, right? But rather, he's, he's pointing to Jesus' singular authority to forgive sin as one man among men. God had given this authority to a man who dwelt now among men. Certainly, it highlights Jesus as the, the Son of Man, as our mediator, and friends, I think already in this passage, we've seen his glory on display as the, as the priest who forgives, as the prophet who discerns their thoughts and knows their hearts without hearing a word that they said, and as the king who speaks and the paralyzed man walks. He's our perfect prophet, priest, and king. Friends, the reaction of the crowd wasn't just a general happiness, was it? That the paralytic had been healed. They didn't go away just elated that something miraculous had happened to this man. Rather, what drew their intention was not something about the man, but something about Jesus. There was something so utterly unique about him that they were terrified. And friends, there's there's nothing in the text that tells us that the crowds shouldn't have responded like this. There's no indicator that their fear was unwarranted or irrational that if they just got to know Jesus a little better, they wouldn't be so afraid. 
No, it seems that there was in Jesus such a display of goodness. Such a display of authority and power from heaven that it caused them to rightly tremble. Perhaps at their own lack of goodness in comparison to him. I think I've shared this before, but it does make me think of that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I know I used that Narnia illustration last week in which Lucy is talking to Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, the lion, the great king. And Lucy asked Mrs. Beaver, is he, is he quite safe? And Mrs. Beaver says, no, who said anything about being safe, Right? When you stand before the, the king, your knees are going to knock. He's not safe, but he is good. He's the king. He's our good king. And that, friends, is how we must respond to Jesus Christ, even as a believer. Jesus is not your homie. He's not your bro. He's not your dude. Jesus is your Lord and your God. Beloved, what's your response this morning as you peer over the crowds at what took place in Capernaum? Make no mistake about it, in this exchange with the paralytic and with the scribes, Jesus was teaching us who he is and what he came to do. No one left this event unchanged. The paralytic walked away forgiven. The scribes walked away enraged. Their silent accusations were like ominous clouds that grew darker and darker over the horizon of Jesus' ministry all the way to the crucifixion. The crowds responded by fearing and praising God. Friends, you cannot encounter the Lord Jesus Christ and remain neutral. You either will respond in faith and repentance and awe and worship, or you will harden your hearts in apathy or in anger. How will you leave this encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Will you leave the great physician sicker or better? What do you think of his diagnosis of your greatest problem and his solution for it? Will you respond in faith to the one who came to forgive the sin-sick soul? Or will you turn away? Will you yield to the one whose eyes pierce into your very thoughts and motives? Or will you harden your heart? Will you bow the knee to the king who has the authority to forgive you and embrace him by faith as your Lord and your God? Or will you remain seated on the throne of your life? Friends, I think a very clear takeaway from this passage for us who are Christians is that every day, we need to remind ourselves what Jesus has done for us. Every day, there are a thousand things flying at us that would distract us from the reality that our sins are forgiven. Our sins speak against us. Our circumstances discourage us. And if we spend our days listening to our thoughts, rehearsing our discouragement, listening to the lies of our flesh and the lies of the world and the lies of the enemy, that is a losing game. We've lost before we've started the battle. So every day we need not to listen to ourselves, but to preach the good news to ourselves, to rehearse the gospel that Jesus has lived and died and rose, risen again in our place. 
to give us joy and hope and peace. Friends, this is why we fill our services with the gospel. That's why we pray prayers of confession, because we want to constantly posture ourselves in humility and remind ourselves that our only hope is the mercy of God in Christ to save us. And for some of you, you've never come to Jesus in faith and repentance. Oh, friend, I pray that, that your response today is that you would recognize your greatest need and reach out by faith to Jesus to save you. I pray that this morning you will join the ranks of all the rest of us who hear the words to the, the Jesus' words to the paralytic. Take heart, my son. Take heart, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven, and you might know them to be true because you've come to Jesus Christ by faith. Let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we stand in awe of who you are. You're our king, you're our God, you're the son of man, you're the great exalted king, and you are our Lord. We praise you, Father, that you have spoken a word of forgiveness over us at the cross, that you have the authority to forgive our sins, and indeed you have if we've come to you in faith and repentance. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us all to be reminded this morning of the glory of being forgiven sinners. Father, so often we are discouraged by our lack of godliness. We're discouraged by besetting sins. We're discouraged about our, our coldness of heart toward you. Father, we don't want to be content in those things. We don't want to be content to sin liberally. We don't want to be content to be cold. But at the same time, we praise you that we fight for this type of faith as ones who have been forgiven. We don't fight in order to earn that forgiveness. Father, help this truth to, to just transform our hearts and our lives this week. I pray for those who are in the room and they've not come to Christ. Oh, Father, even now, draw their hearts to you. Grant them repentance and faith. Grant them eyes to see Jesus and to embrace him, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.